Thank you for joining us for study this morning. I hope you've had a great week. I hope you've been meditating on the truths that we learned last week in Psalm 46, finding stability in God through the instability of this life. I hope that passage has been going on in your mind over and over again this week. So I found myself daydreaming this morning about my normal Sunday. Uh, My normal Sunday routine would go something like this. The joy of walking into the church with my loved family and then meeting with a smiling face and a hug, Joanne Llewellyn, at this, at this door over here. Walking straight from there to the, the coffee bar and seeing people I love, seeing the Wesleys, seeing the Gormans, seeing Daisleys, uh, seeing Pam, seeing Sheila. Um, I would go from there over to the information desk and I, other people I love, the Nails, the Woods, VC, seeing Rosemary, walking from there over to this, this little chair over here, seeing a smiling face, one of my best friends, Ralph Herrick, getting all the Usher stuff ready, him sharing with me possibly a, a joke, we laughing together, walking into the auditorium here, and depending on the time, seeing some of my best friends in the world standing at these three doors. I love seeing Rich and Steve, Grant, uh, I mean, I love seeing Morgan, I love seeing Bob and and Nick, all of these men greeting me with a big hug and a handshake and a big smile and others involved in the entire scenario. Out in the foyer seeing Nico and Owen helping their mom set up the children, mom and dad, Hank, uh, and Danielle set up the children's table, getting ready for all the children to come in. I, I was thinking, daydreaming about my time walking up the stairs. And as I'm walking up the stairs, I'm listening to the music team put the final details to the music set for the day. Matt and Hannah and, and Steve and Steve and Lonnie. Uh, I'm thinking of I'm, all of these, group, these people involved in the music team. Grant and Debbie and Tina and Sarah and Diana and Tim and Arthur and Angela. Thinking in my mind this morning, thinking, oh man, I miss that walking up the stairs to pray with the AV team, talking with Kevin, talking with Seth and Angela and Ariel and Bonnie and Carrie and the other members of the AV team, walking from there down, getting ready to pray with the music team before the service starts. And one of my favorite things in the entire week is to see God's people starting to flood into the auditorium, smiling faces ready to receive the word. Oh boy. I almost broke down in tears this morning thinking about that, thinking how much I miss that. I want you to know, wherever you're at right now, whether you're sitting on your couch, you're sitting at your desk, maybe you're eating your cereal with your phone in hand, watching the service, wherever it might be, I want you to know this, you're missed. I cannot wait to see you again here at Cross Point Community Church. Nonetheless, today, here we are, back in Web Church. We are so thankful for Web Church, so thankful for tech that makes this possible. Um, I would like to, so I would like to invite you this morning, even in Web Church, to take your Bibles, to take your devices, and go with me this morning to a passage in Scripture in Isaiah. Would you go with me to Isaiah chapter 40, almost directly in the center of your Bible? Isaiah 40. One of the most powerful passages of comfort and guidance and direction in all of the Old Testament texts. 
a passage highlighting the nature of a good and gracious God who's working His glorious plan. Uh, Actually, the next three weeks, we're going to be in the very same chapter, Isaiah 40. Rather than track one verse at a time through all 31 verses of this text, we're actually going to highlight different themes through this chapter. We're going to take some time and wrap our mind, try to wrap our minds around the comfort of who God is and what is God doing. Again, I want to invite you to take uh, the study outline that's provided there and work through that. That will definitely help you as we navigate through this text today, especially as we jump from one verse to another. But before we dig into this text, would you join me as we approach God's throne of grace. So God, we thank you for the opportunity we have to worship you this morning, to study your holy word. Oh God, I pray that you would graciously guide us to a greater understanding of who you are, a greater appreciation of what you are doing, what you have done, what you are doing, and what you will do. God, I pray that you would dispel those doubts that so easily make their ways into our minds. That when we finish this study, we would have more of a resolve to love you with our entire heart and soul and mind and strength. That's the prayer this morning. Thank you for all the listeners here, Crosspoint members, friends, those who may be tuning in from anywhere in this world right now. Thank you, God. Thank you for the common bond that we have in Jesus Christ. And it's in Jesus Christ's name I pray this all this morning. Amen. So, question. How big is your God? You ever asked yourself that question before? Maybe maybe you've had someone else ask that to you. How big is your God? And then you've gone home and you've thought about it and you asked yourself that question. How big is my God? The reality is, so often, we are tempted to package an infinite God into a pretty little box of our own finite, limited understanding. A box that we can kind of tote around and reference when convenient to us. But then, real life in a broken world happens. Uncertainty, suffering, trials, Relentless conflicts, unexpected death, devastating divorce, deceitful cheating, relentless mocking, subtle criticism, real life in a broken world. And what happens to that pretty little box that contains our nice little packaged God that we can understand and and limit? Sadly, this little box is insufficient to the task. As our world gets rocked, as our plans get shattered, as our bank accounts get drained, as our jobs get put on hold, as our lives get squeezed, you know what I'm talking about. In all of that, we inadvertently start to doubt the goodness of a God that we have contained to the confines and borders of our understanding. We unintentionally see words of disbelief. We see actually weeds 
of this disbelief. Enter into our nicely cultivated Christian garden. We subconsciously start to ask questions like this. Does does God really have a plan? Is God really powerful enough? If he does have a plan, is he really powerful enough to work that plan? Does God really have all this figured out? And then fitting right into Satan's temptation in all of humanity, all of human existence, this question. Is God really good? And ultimately, where Satan's headed with that question is this. Is God really God? The temptation to doubt God was so real to me on a societal level, when I heard the statement that Andrew Cuomo, governor of New York, a loosely professing Christian, gave in a press conference on April 13th. Maybe some of you heard this. In regard to leveling the supposed curve of COVID-19, he boldly, and I would say he proudly, he very offensively announced this. The number is down because we brought the number down. God did not do that. Faith did not do that. Destiny did not do that. A lot of pain and suffering did that. That's how it works. And then he made this statement. It's math. My jaw dropped when I heard that. Quite frankly, after thousands of people had already died, Governor Cuomo, You now are arrogantly proclaiming that we have it all figured out. It's math. It's simply like a math equation, and we can put the pieces together and figure out how to fix it. As I listened to this, I not only thought that this man will give account of these words before a holy God, but but it is also overwhelmingly clear to me that this man's opinion of God was seriously lacking. He brought a holy God down to a level that maybe he could try to understand. And in the same time, he elevated humanity up to a level that they were never meant to be. But honestly, as as harsh as I want to be to Governor Andrew Cuomo, what happens when my life is squeezed? Honestly, I'm tempted to start thinking similar thoughts, asking similar questions. And oftentimes, I have to intentionally stop those questions, stop those doubts, and run to this exact question. Andrew Scott, how big is your God? As believers, when these doubts creep into our minds, these questions pop into our heads and our hearts, where do we practically go to make sure our thoughts of God are accurate? Well, you know the answer because you just said it on your couch. Yes, we run with all that we have to the tried and tested Word of God to make sure we are processing things as children of God should, what do we do? We run to passages like Isaiah chapter 40. We're not going to read all the way through the 31 verses today, but I do want to highlight a couple of these verses that were just read to us by some very precious people a minute ago. I want to highlight verse 1. 
on your handout, on your device, in your Bibles, would you look with me at verse 1? Verse 1 says this, Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Would you skip with me down to verse 18? Verse 18 says this, To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with him? Verse 25, words from our sovereign God. Here they are. To whom then will you compare me? That I should be like him, says the Holy One. Skip down two verses to verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. I love this. Verse 28. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. So so what is this? What is this text of Scripture? Isaiah chapter 40. Well, as we read, verse 1, it really does set the tone for the rest of chapter 40 and actually the rest of the entire book to the end. Comfort, my people. Comfort, says your God. Comfort, stated twice for emphasis, is basically this, relief, consolation. Some would find interest in this, but this is in the second person plural imperative. You say, why in the world did you bring that up? Well, here's why. Because this is not just meant for Isaiah. This is meant to be a comforting text by multiple messengers of God, all the way to 2020 today. Comfort, my people. Find comfort in your God. This very day, brothers and sisters in Christ, we can find comfort in this text. This text recorded by Isaiah. A prophet whose name means, you know it, the Lord is salvation. Isaiah grew up in Jerusalem, ministered primarily to the southern part of the kingdom in the split kingdom time of history, Israel's history, prior to them going to their Babylonian captivity. Isaiah was a prophet who ministered alongside two other dudes. You might know them, Hosea and Micah. Isaiah ministered through the reigns of four kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah. Isaiah wrote extensively about the coming of the Messiah. Ironically enough, Isaiah in the New Testament is quoted more than any other Old Testament person, over 60 times. So, verse 1 says comfort. Well, why is comfort needed at this time? Well, they were all about, God's people were all about to experience intense suffering. Through his the first portion of his books, we're talking about all the way up to verse, uh, chapter 40, Isaiah writes of the realities of God's righteous justice, those who swerve from God's plans. Woe to you. He, he, sho- he, he showers it with promises as we go through the text, but predominantly as you go through the first 40 chapters, we're talking about God's righteous justice. But then, chapter 40 on, 
we find sort of this switch to this highlighting of God's goodness and grace, his kindness. Isaiah is one of the clearest books ever that exposes the nature of God and the details of his glorious plan seen in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. If you doubt me, just look at Isaiah chapter 53. A Messiah who first comes as a suffering servant, but a Messiah who will one day reign as conquering king. So over the next three weeks, I pray that we can saturate our lives in the truths found in Isaiah chapter 40. The question is this, it's going to drive all three of the studies in the next three weeks, is this, how big is your God? My prayer is that we will be assured from this passage of three key ideas. Here are the three key ideas. We're going to look at one each week. Key idea one, our God is big enough to know everything perfectly. Key idea number two, our God is big enough to rule his creation powerfully. Key idea number three, our God is big enough to guide his people graciously. So let's start with that first key idea, and let's kind of try to wrap our minds around that this morning. Here's the key idea. Our God is big enough to know everything perfectly. In other words, this. Our God is big enough to see everything clearly. Our God is big enough to perceive every shred of information that has ever been with precise perfection. Basically this. Have you ever thought about this? Nothing has ever or will ever surprise God. You ever thought about that? I love that. Because we, we talk often of these aha moments. Well, here's the fact. From eternity past all the way into eternity future, not one time has God ever, ever, ever had an aha moment. In no way has the triune God, the creator and sustainer of, all, sustainer of all life, ever looked at his creation and said, Oh man, can, can you, did you see that? Can you believe that just happened? Not one time has that ever happened. Well, let's see this unfold clearly, this concept of God's perfect knowledge unfold in Isaiah 40. I want us to kind of zero in on verses 13 and 14. So if you would travel in your Bibles down to verses 13 and 14. Here it is. Verse 13. A series of questions now that help us come to a conclusion. Here's the first question. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? And now subsequent questions. Or what man shows him his counsel? Who did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? What, would, what can we conclude from these two verses? Very simply this. God's knowledge is incomparable. It is independent. It stands alone. So let's just take a couple minutes and kind of briefly unpack verses 13 and 14. Starting with the first question. Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord? When we talk about this measure, we're not talking about measuring from point A to point B. That would be actually in verse 12. 
That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about with measuring here is the word regulated. It's the concept of directed. It's the concept of metered out, as some of your translations might say. It's going through the adjustments to meet up to the right standard. Um, I'm sure I would not say this as, as good as one of the best mechanics in the whole county would say it. I'm talking about Kevin McKellar at Paul Stower Automotive. You need to go there. But when I think of this, I think of dialing in that classic car. Getting the fuel and air mixture just right. Timing your injectors just right. What have you done? You've dialed in that vehicle. Well, here's the point that is made to Isaiah, and Isaiah now makes. It's this. Who has ever dialed in God to get him just right, to perform just the right way? The clear, obvious answer is absolutely no one. Not even close. Okay, we go from there to another question. Not only who has measured the Spirit of the Lord, from there is what man shows him his counsel? <laughs> in other words, what advisor has ever informed God of, a, of a, even a slight deficiency in his life? The obvious answer is absolutely no one. And here's another question. Who did he consult? Who did God consult? In other words, who did God ever seek information from to become more enlightened about a subject? The obvious answer is absolutely no one. Here's another question. Who made him understand? In other words, who ever walked God down the path of comprehension like a teacher to a student, like hundreds of thousands of of Newly homeschooled parents trying to walk their kids through the information that their teachers are passing on. Walking your kid through a course to greater comprehension. And the concept is that. Who did that with God? The answer, absolutely no one. Who taught him the path of justice? In other words, who sat down and showed God what was truly fair? Oh my soul, I absolutely love that one. Why? Because our culture right now is consumed with trying to tell God what is fair. Oh boy, if I could just tell God what exactly is fair, according to my estimation, my thought is this. Oh dear, based on sin, do you really want what is fair? Do you really want to talk about what's fair? The obvious answer to has anybody taught God the path of justice is no. Not one of us can truly show God any kind of what is fair. Another question. Who taught him knowledge? Teach. Mean, uh, this, this means to teach God how to perceive something accurately. God, I want to show you how to understand this more accurately. To perceive this better. Well, who's done that? The answer, again, obviously, not a single one of us has ever taught God how to change his perspective of life. Another question. Who showed him the way of understanding? Who has demonstrated to God how to come to a right conclusion or how to do something better? I mean, it'd be like me trying, uh, going out and, and seeing my, my kids play soccer. Say, hey, let me show you how to do that move and how to approach that move. And, and then watching them do it, say, yeah, you got it. Who has ever done that to God when it comes to the way he works and his understanding? The answer is absolutely no one. 
So what is this? What is this series of questions? Isaiah, who many see as the most articulate author in all of the Old Testament, is using almost every single Hebrew word he can in regard to learning or teaching or knowledge, and he packs them all into two verses with six questions and says, who in the world has ever taught God anything? What's the point he's making? This God, who we tend to doubt and to question, has incomparable knowledge. So, why? Why is his knowledge incomparable? His wisdom is transcendent. His understanding is superior. Why all of that? And here's one reason why. It is for his eternal glory. Now, sometimes we tend to get caught up on sort of like this this general idea of God's knowledge. So God knows everything perfectly well, all of what's happening in the in, in the globe, all of what's happening in human history, and sometimes we kind of we kind of like park our car in the realm of the big. I love where David parks his car in Psalm one thirty nine verses one through six. He says, "Not only is your knowledge does it blow my mind how vast it is but your knowledge blows my mind in how personal it is god just doesn't know what's happening on the big screen god knows what's happening in the finite detail i mean uh, the small minute detail i should say of of your life sitting on that couch right there how does david say it psalm 139 i love this oh lord you have searched me and known me. I mean, just take account of the personal pronouns used in this passage. Verse 2, you know when I sit down. <laughs> you know when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, before, behold, oh Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. And what's David's response in Psalm 139? Such knowledge, oh, it's too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain to it. What is this all about? Well, God's knowledge is vast. But brothers and sisters in Christ, God's knowledge is incredibly personal. God knows you. God knows what you're going through right now. Teenager, God knows what you're going through right now. Youngster, mom, dad, college student, parent, grandparent. He knows the deepest, darkest parts of your life, just like he knows the broadest, brightest aspects of your life. God knows you perfectly well. His knowledge, as Isaiah points out in Isaiah 40, his knowledge is incomparable. And brothers and sisters in Christ, let us find comfort through uncertain times in the fact that God's knowledge, his wisdom, is incomparable. Back to Isaiah 40. I want to jump into one other verse that proves this. It's verse 28. Here it is. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. Here's the phrase. His understanding is unsearchable. 
As much as God has graciously revealed about himself, we will never be able to grasp the depths of his knowledge. In my mind, I I, I jump over to Romans chapter 11 in the New Testament. As Paul has defined and and really walked through God's sovereign uh, working with Israel in regard to their salvation, what is the conclusion? Chapter 11, verse 33. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? And here he quotes Isaiah 40 in Romans 11. Paul says this, Who has been his counselor? What's the simple takeaway, brothers and sisters in Christ? Here it is. Friends, how big is your God? Through these times of uncertainty, frustration for many of us, maybe it's not as much uncertainty or pain, it's more frustration for many of us, Refusing the temptation to think we know better than God. A God whose knowledge and wisdom is incomparable. Practically, what derails this resolve in our minds? So we're resolved. Yes, I will believe in this God who has incomparable wisdom. Practically, what, what very simply sometimes derails this resolve. And here it is, pain, suffering, death. Please know today that the God who numbers every hair on every head of every person who's ever existed, he's not surprised by the suffering of COVID-19. COVID-19 in no way surprised the God who sovereignly ordains and allows everything that happens in his glorious plan of eternal redemption. We are assured of what Moses says in Deuteronomy 29.29, that there are some things that we will not understand about God, these secret things about God. But we, you and I, can rest assured that he is working in plan that will fix it over. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we can rest assured that the story is not over. Our God is big enough to know everything perfectly. His knowledge is incomparable. I want to see quickly a point number two here in this text, that his knowledge lasts forever. So not only is his knowledge incomparable, his knowledge will last into eternity. How do we see this in this text? Well, listen, and you can follow along verses 6 through 8 if you'd like. Listen to what is said to Isaiah and then recorded by Isaiah. A voice says, verse 6, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? Cry this. As we work through this, all flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades with, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, and here it is. But the word of the Lord stands forever. Very practically, where do we look to find God's incomparable wisdom revealed to us? You know, I just heard you say it from your couch. It is in his eternal word. The book that you hold on your lap right now reveals God's incomparable wisdom. We see aspects of his incomparable wisdom revealed through the precious texts of the book you hold on your lap right now. Clearly, God has revealed his knowledge to us 
through his powerful words as recorded in his precious word. And Isaiah points this out when he says, God's word lasts forever. Amen, Daniel? In contrast, uh, actually we see a comparison here. The entire argument that, that, that Isaiah makes is, is based on a very clear comparison. Let's just think about this. Here's what he says. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Okay, the grass. Clearly talking here of humanity. Clearly talking, it states it, of people. But then this concept of flower, the grass withers, the flower fades. What is the flower? It is the blossom, the shining thing. I look at this as being a clear metaphor for humanity at its best. We're talking about at the peak of your human beauty. We're talking about the prime of your life at the most beautiful moment imaginable with the best selfie angle that you could ever compose. At your very best, the point is there is still absolutely no way to avoid the reality of withering and fading. We will see clearly that here in Reading in about a month and a half. Everything fading away. But in contrast to the grass withering, the flower fading, what do we find very clearly in this text that we can hold on to with all we have is the word of our God. It stands forever. It will endure. It will remain constant. Nothing will unsettle the word of God. So brothers and sisters in Christ, through this time we refuse to find our comfort in a news media that has almost completely discredited itself. We refuse to find our comfort in a World Health Organization or even a Dr. Anthony Fauci who has both of them well-meaning but clearly have gotten some numbers wrong here, possibly by a couple zeros. We refuse to find our comfort in state governors who have all of a sudden become the most trusted medical health professionals. Sure we listen. Sure we take note. But we stabilize each thought. We run each thought through this comfort that the grass withers, the flower falls away, but the Word of God stands forever. Brothers and sisters in Christ, in God's enduring Word, that Bible you hold on your lap, we see God's incomparable knowledge exposed his beautiful story unfold in God's enduring word we find meaning for life and actually we find meaning for death in God's enduring word we clearly see the rebellion of mankind that it has caused a broken world in that bible in God's enduring word we clearly see a realistic picture of a human race that has ignored God's goodness and abused God's world by selfishly lying and stealing and cheating and killing. But also, in that Bible, in God's enduring word, we see a long-suffering God. We, see a, we actually see a long-suffering God when His justice would be completely fair 
to allow a 9-11 or even another global pandemic to happen every single day of the week. In God's enduring word, we see that God is so merciful to not give us what we deserve. While at the same time, we see that God is so gracious to give us what we do not deserve. And that is hope, eternal hope through Christ. In God's enduring word, that Bible you have on your lap right now, we see a God whose grace can be observed every single day that he provides rain and sun and seasons. In God's enduring word, we are assured and we realize that our suffering is not wasted. That through Christ, it is not death to die. And that our living hope can thrive through pain and suffering and death. In that Bible you have on your lap, in God's enduring word, we clearly see that God has been and is painting on a massive canvas that we cannot come close to comprehending. In God's enduring word, that Bible you have on your lap right now, we clearly see, brothers and sisters, that the story is not over. The suffering servant lamb will return as the conquering king lion. In God's enduring word, that Bible you hold on your lap right now, we clearly see that through Christ, God's incomparable wisdom will never fade. It will not dim. It will endure forever. The grass withers. The flower fades. But the word of our God, revealing the wisdom of our God, will last forever. This week, I experienced the realities of the frailty of life, while at the same time, the promises of the enduring word in a very real way. In two consecutive days, the lives of two of my mentors in my life faded from this life to the next. However, I praise God that because of the enduring word, these mentors are with Christ right now. One of my mentors was a man's man hockey coach. He was a Canadian pastor a missionary. This is a man who loved God and his word. This is a man who held to the enduring word of God with all he had. This is a man who wasn't perfect, and actually, to be quite honest with you, he was not the most gifted communicator, but he loved God's word. The truths of the enduring word are right now a reality to Sorel Surachek in heaven. Another of my dearest mentors in my whole life was a sweet and very opinionated lady who absolutely loved God's word. She dealt with extreme scoliosis most of her life, nearly crippling her for several years. She loved politics and she loved correcting my English. But most of all, she loved talking with me and multiple other people about the precious word of God. For the last 25 years of her life, for hours in a, any given week, she spent teaching teenagers how to memorize God's word and how to apply God's word. My thought this week with tears in my eyes is this, the knowledge that Marie Klein gained 
and the enduring word They are a reality to her right now. Why? Because the grass withers, the flower falls away, but the word of the Lord stands forever. So what? Back to the key idea for the day. This mini-series in Isaiah 40 is this. This question. How big is your God? Is your God big enough to have everything figured out? Or, frankly, are you, am I, still trying to advise God? As we process suffering, uncertainty, frustration, will we this week right-size our God? A second question would be this, not only how big is your God, but this question, will you fully trust God's incomparable wisdom this week? Are you assured beyond a shadow of a doubt that God's wisdom revealed in his enduring word will last forever? Next week, we'll continue to unpack this chapter of comfort. But this week, let us be assured of this, brothers and sisters in Christ, our God is big enough to know everything perfectly well. I think we're done. (laughs) All set. Was that what it was? I I went on a couple rabbit trails. (laughs) 